So, the end of our journey in uh, this uh, Live It series, where we've been looking uh, at Ephesians, the whole of the book, and reminding ourselves why Paul wrote it and to whom that Paul was uh, writing to Christians that predominantly he didn't know, but were the result of the time that he himself had spent in Ephesus. You may remember as we talked about his missionary journeys that by the time he got to Ephesus, the third of his four or maybe five missionary journeys, depending on how you uh, look at them, Paul altered his strategy. Instead of moving quickly from church to church, uh, which he did in the early days, traveling thousands of miles, starting lots of churches very quickly, that in the end seemed to be the weaker of the churches that he started. He changed his strategy altogether and spent two years in Ephesus, which was a really long time for a man that was always on the move. And he worked really hard with a relatively small group of people in order that he might disciple them, that they might go out and be themselves disciple-making disciples. And so the gospel spread, it says, through the whole of the province of Asia Minor, even though Paul only stayed in one place. And it was, in a sense, getting much closer to the strategy of Jesus, who poured his life into the few, into the twelve, in order to reach uh, the many. And so some years later now, Paul writes this letter that was a circular letter, a mail-out that was going to go around to all the churches uh, in the area, reminding them, encouraging them, stirring them on in some of the key things of the faith. Written, therefore, to ordinary Christians, to the saints, those who could do unbelievably extraordinary things as they trusted God and as they lived out the life in Christ where God had placed them. I remember we also thought about that there's no, uh, there were no big central churches in those days, but the gospel was spreading from household to household, extended family to extended family, and uh, as people learned to live the life of Christ in their workplace and in their neighborhood, so the gospel was growing. And so we come to the end of what he's writing to them, uh, as we get into Ephesians chapter uh, 6 and the second part of it. Uh, and here we see Paul pulling back the veil, as it were. He pulls back the veil to help these uh, uh, early believers, to remind these early believers that there is always a spiritual perspective to what's happening. To remind these early believers that what they see and feel and touch is not the whole story. In fact, it's never the whole story. Behind the temporal world, the here and now, the physical world that we see, is a spiritual eternal world that we do not see with physical eyes, but whose impact is greater than we might dare to imagine. A spiritual world that we might not always remember to see, that deeply impacts uh, the way that we live and the way that uh, the gospel spreads or the way the gospel is prevented from spreading. And so verse 10, hope you've got it open in front of you. Uh, follow these verses along with me might be helpful. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And uh, if you're trying to live out the life of Christ, you'll understand why Paul is saying, where I've placed you, uh, be strong in the Lord. Why? Verse 11, put on the full armour of God. What for? So that you might take your stand against the devil's schemes. So at the end of this book, uh, as a finale, Paul wants to say, remember what's really going on. There is a spiritual battle 
and remember that you are in it. And so it's like he's pulling back the curtain to help us see what we might not have readily seen otherwise. He's writing to a missional people who were learning what it was to live the, the, the missional life. If you want to be missional, Paul's saying, remember to be aware of the enemy. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is not against organizing our lives, the busyness of it. Our struggle is not against the people that are hostile to the gospel. Our struggle is not against the people that are apathetic to the gospel. But he says, look, take a step back and look what's going on in the spiritual world behind the scenes. Our struggle is not against those things that you might readily think you are struggling with and against but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul is pleading, do not forget the spiritual dimension. Let's take a pause for a moment and just get our bearings on where Paul uh, is coming from. The Bible teaches us that there is a creator, a creator God, one God, uh, uh, we're monotheistic in our belief. We believe in one God, the sole universal creator of all things. There is only one creator. Everything else is created. And the Bible talks essentially about two types of created beings. There are spiritual or heavenly beings, and the language is a bit loose and it's not perfect language, but perhaps you'll understand the distinction that we're making. There's sort of spiritual and heavenly beings. That's not to say we're not spiritual beings, because we are. And then there are sort of physical, earthly, human beings, if you like. Uh, uh, Physical in an earthly sense. God made all of that. It's all his. It all belongs to him. He is the head of all. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the psalmist reminds us of. How this happened, we're not exactly sure. We get glimpses of it in the Bible, but not a lot of detail. Uh, And I guess with some things, uh, uh, God treats us on a need-to-know basis, and uh, we probably don't need to know. Uh, We speculate enough about these things as it is. So uh, uh, the the Spirit, in his wisdom, probably decided not to give us even more things to speculate. But essentially, there was a chief angel, uh, Daniel. The book of Daniel would tell us that the the devil would have been uh, an angel on the par with angel Michael and Gabriel, so a chief angel that decided... Instead of obeying God, that that angel wanted to be God. Instead of obeying God, that angel wanted to be God and rebelled against God, taking a shed load, maybe a third of the angelic host, the angelic beings uh, with him. That's certainly what uh, glimpses we get in the book of Revelation uh, about this. Very interesting, isn't it? That the spiritual beings decided they didn't want to obey God, but to be God. And when Eve and Adam sinned and they ate the fruit, it was a decision to no longer obey him, but an attempt to be him. And so we have followed suit as the human race. So you've got this third, this high-ranking angelic being that rebelled against God, was thrown out of heaven, uh, and you have the devil and uh, all the demons under him. And uh, the Bible teaches very clearly that that demonic group of angelic beings uh, has caught the world in its grip. Or to be more uh, to be more accurate, we ourselves, in our own sinful rebellion, have put ourselves under the authority of this demonic uh, uh, regime. 
the whole world, the Bible says. In fact, Paul said earlier on in Ephesians, you can turn back to it if you want to, Ephesians chapter 2, this world in which he used to live, when he followed the ways of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work at those who are... uh, Sorry, as at work in those who are disobedient. So there's a sense in which this world is in the grip of an enemy who has set out to be against God in every way. An enemy that is opposed to God's purpose. And Paul is saying, remember, remember that the real struggle It's not against flesh and blood, but it is against the rulers and authorities that are seeking to stand opposed to God in this world. Now, if you stand back and look at the history of our world, it's not that hard to imagine that the world is in the grip of all kinds of ungodly powers. We think about the wars, the awful atrocities. Just last week uh, in uh, in sort of middle to eastern Europe, all those, those funerals, the transferring of all those graves in Bosnia and so on, the violence, the bloodshed, the hate and the greed, it's not hard to see that this world is in the grip of uh, e not just evil, but the Bible would say the evil one. And the Bible teaches that there's not just uh, uh, evil, that there's a, a champion of this evil, a, a herald of it, who's stirring it up at every opportunity. Why? Because he stands utterly opposed to God. Now, people respond to all of this in different ways. Uh, some Christians respond by almost ignoring it completely. Uh, uh, living life as if the only reality is ourselves on earth and God in heaven. And that can be fine for a while, while it's all going well, but then when it goes wrong, if there's only us and God, we don't really want to blame ourselves, so we end up blaming God. And when something goes wrong, the first thing on our voice is, why God? As if God did that to us and, and, and for us. And uh, uh, and we get ourselves into a pickle of, of placing on God all kinds of things that are just not true about him. And to be fair, the enemy loves that. He loves to stir things up and then for us to blame God for it. And he sits back and just enjoys the show. And uh, can, can the devil muck around with things in our lives? Yes, of course he can. In 1 Samuel chapter 19, for example, uh, when God is raising up David to be the most significant king that Israel will ever see, it talks about an evil spirit entering Saul who would uh, every now and again just pop a spear at him. I mean, you play your music with two eyes open, don't you, if, uh, if that's going on. Uh, uh, and uh, there was a spiritual dimension to what was going on with the calling of David. It wasn't just that God chose David, it was that there's a spiritual dimension that saw God choosing David and said, I'll do something about that. I'll try and thwart that. I'll try and get in the way of that. I'll try and affect that. So some people ignore all of that altogether. Other people, of course, become totally focused on it all. And uh, they see the devil in everything and everywhere and give him way, way too much credit and give him the focus of their lives when, of course, the focus of our lives should be Jesus and none other. The Bible's perspective is this, to expect him and to resist him. To expect him and to resist him. And we shall see that as we go through these verses. So not only do we have an enemy... But we also need to be aware of the enemies or the devil's schemes. His whole mission is to bring down the work of God. And that's why his mission is to bring you down. If you want to be about the work of God. That's what it's about. 
In the end, it's not about you. It's about getting at God. And if he can use you to do that, he'll be very happy in that regard. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil who's scheming. Be self-controlled and alert because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. Whenever God's kingdom is advancing, he's never, ever far away. And maybe we can just think about that briefly through, through a sweep of scripture. Genesis chapter 1, God creates the universe. The end of Genesis chapter 1, and then again in Genesis chapter 2, we get the story about God creating man and woman and, and giving them the, the, uh, the, the mandate to be fruitful and to have dominion, to extend the rule of God throughout the earth. Go, be fruitful, flourish, and, uh, and serve the earth to the glory of God. That's how the Bible begins. Yep, chapters 1 and 2. Straight away then, chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other of the wild animals. And then we get the story of the devil coming along in the form of a serpent and tempting Adam and Eve in that way. And so right at the beginning of the Bible, there's God and his purpose, and then there's this enemy that's never far away. Moses, the greatest leader who would be, uh, maybe you might say in the Old Testament, leading the people out of uh, slavery into the promised land, uh, as soon as he was born, what was happening to his life as a little baby? Hey, have you read, anyone read the Bible? Yeah, yeah, remember how they had to hide him in the bulrushes, why? Because there was a threat on his life? Suddenly circumstances were such that uh, uh, he needed to be protected to survive. We just mentioned about David some moments ago, about how, as he was rising to become king, Saul was being uh, uh, conjoled by an evil spirit to throw spears at him. Uh, Jesus, the greatest king, just as he was born, what happened? Decree went out that all the babies under the age of two years of age should be uh, killed. Was that just the work of a tyrant king, King Herod, on the face of it, yes. On the face of it, it's just an evil man who wants power for himself, so he's going to kill every rival king. But the book of Revelation does what Paul is doing here and pulls back the veil for us and says, what you need to understand about what happened with Jesus when he was born in Herod's day is that behind the physical that you see, this tyrant king, was a spiritual dimension that was at work. And you might want to read it with me in Revelation chapter 12, uh, verses 1 to 5. I've got a couple of verses on the screen. Verse 1, a great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of twelve stars on her head. A blessed anointed woman. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Verse 3. Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. That's not so good. Verse 4. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky. It's one of the references that we have about why we think there were a third of the angelic hosts becoming demonic. Uh, His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman. This is spiritual language. This is what's happening in the spiritual world. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might what? He might devour her child the moment it was born. In the spiritual, there's a raging battle 
as Jesus is being born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, Jesus. And a child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Hallelujah, you might say. Hashtag fail to the devil. But he has another go. Jesus about to start his ministry. It says that he's empowered by the Holy Spirit. He's just been baptized. He's received the blessing from the Father. He goes into the desert to pray. And who does he meet? Right at the beginning. The first person he meets as he steps forward in God's mission for his life. He's there. And it's as if all the time there's this nod and this wink, this keep your eyes open for what's going on in the spiritual world. Do not be surprised as you think you step one step forward into God's purpose. The very first person you meet when you're expecting to meet God, the very first person you meet is the, de- is the devil, his enemy, who's there prowling around seeking whom he may devour. The devil's schemes, always seeking to thwart to pull down, to rob, to steal. The thief comes to rob and to steal, Jesus said. I've come that you might have life. So how does he scheme? He schemes in all kinds of different ways. And maybe the uh, question that we need to ask ourselves is that if I was the devil, how would I scheme in my life to keep me ineffective as a Christian? And you'd probably get a good window on the way he might seek to uh, uh, affect and infiltrate uh, our plans as we press forward in God's purpose. So he's scheming. He uses the lust of our eyes, the Bible says. What we look at deeply, deeply affects us. We're in a very visual culture now. And we're aware of how much a visual image will impact us. Everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, where does it come from? It comes not from the Father, But from the world, the ruler of this world would scheme to affect us by what we see with our eyes. We need to guard our eyes and guard our ears and guard our our minds. He works by just rocking us to sleep. We've talked about this verse several times over the last year or so. This idea about the whole world being under the control of the evil one, it's like a, it's like the whole world, the language is, it's like the evil one singing a little lullaby, just rocking us to sleep. There, there, shh. And spiritually, we're just kind of docile and just happy to be rocked back and forth. And we see the way the devil works at that. Just keeps us distracted, keeps us busy, keeps us focused on other things, and very slowly and surely, spiritually, he's just rocking us to sleep. And we're not a threat to him as we're just rocked back and forth. Every now and again, he'll just push the little cradle of our spiritual lives and keep us rocking back to sleep. And so many other things that we might, perhaps just one more, blindness. One of the strategies uh, the devil uses is, is just to keep us blind. To keep us blind to spiritual truth. The devil loves to keep us blind to the fact that he might be at work at all in, in the world. He's quite happy to go unnoticed. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And the power of this blindness is enormous, isn't it? We see that in the work of people that we know and love. You go to, and you hear the gospel presented, and it's all the hairs on the back of our neck are standing on end, and you think, how can anybody walk out without giving their lives to Jesus? And in fact, it's very easy for people to walk out without giving their lives to Jesus. 
I was struck this week by, by, by the sheer power of, of this blindness. Someone was sharing in one of the groups this week uh, about the Pharisees and, and uh, one of the, the stories of Jesus healing the man with the withered hand. Uh, and it just struck me how, how blindness from the enemy can, can completely cloud our, our, our looking and our perceiving. Uh, uh, there are, it was unlikely in a way. The Pharisees were educated and affluent and influential. And you would imagine that they would be able to see, having studied the Bible, the reality of Jesus when he came. Yet when they meet Jesus, they, they, they just can't see him for who he is. In fact, they're so blind, in the end, they'll nail him to a cross because they, they can't shut him up and they don't know what else to do with him. And as I said, this passage really struck me. Remember the one with the, the man with the, the withered hand? And you know, think about that man for a moment. He's born with a withered hand. So for the whole of his life, he's been, certainly through childhood, he's been mocked for being different. Maybe because of his withered hand, he's found it hard to get a manual job, which is what most of the jobs were. And so he's struggled in some way to be part of the social life of the world in which he grew up. In those days, often people would say, well, if you've got a hand like that, then God must be punishing you. So his relationship with God must have been quite a struggle as well, under the weight of that kind of judgment. And then he meets Jesus. And it's absolutely the best thing that could ever have happened to him. He's suddenly in front of Jesus, who can not only forgive his sin, but can heal his withered hand as well, in any order that he chooses. Which is exactly what Jesus did in Luke chapter 6, verse 10. He he looked around at them, and then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man's hand was completely restored. Wow, can you imagine being there and seeing Jesus do that? No. (laughs) Imagine that moment of watching this guy's hand that you've known that you've played with, that you grew up with, everyone knew this, watching his hand grow. That sense of wow and amazement about what God can do in people's lives. If you can do that for someone's hand, what can he do for their hearts? And you imagine the people just being really caught up in excitement about what God can do. This is an incredible moment. What a fantastic sign of God's kingdom being present. But some of them didn't burst into song. Some of them just couldn't bring themselves to praise God. Some of them just couldn't even acknowledge what had happened. In fact, it seems that the response of the church-going elite was the worst. They were furious. Why? Because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. That, after all, was God's day, wasn't it? The Sabbath. If God wanted to heal on God's day, that seems pretty okay. But, but they were furious. You think, wow, that's quite blind, isn't it? That the day set aside for us to rejoice in the restoration of our lives, the day set aside for us to celebrate God's kingdom, the day set aside for us to rest in anticipation of God's kingdom coming in its fullest sense, what better day for this guy to get his hand healed than now? And they start plotting to nail him to a cross. There is incredible spiritual blindness in our world today. Blind to Jesus, blind to his goodness, blind to the mission of his kingdom and so on and so forth. And Jesus says where that comes from. He says, woe to you. Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert and when he becomes one you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. So there's all kinds of schemes 
the devil will use in our lives. Because he's against God. And he's against God's purpose in us. And to live the missional life, we need to be aware of the devil's schemes. So, what do we need to do in response? Verse 11. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities. To live missional lives, we must be ready to stand and ready to fight. It's a struggle. It's a fight. It's not always easy. You'll have to push through some really tough times. Paul on his missionary journeys, it was a struggle. It was a fight. And uh, so often we, we've fallen for this idea that with Jesus it's easy and it's safe and it's comfortable. That's a different Bible and a different gospel. So stand up, Paul says. You've got to stand up as if you're ready. You don't fight sitting down. Although I've discovered you can do the we sitting down. You don't play tennis like this. It's excellent. <laughs> Instead of all this business. But if you're really going to go for it, you've got to stand up. Stand up. And, and this idea of standing up is, is, is sort of synonymous with the idea of, of taking your stand. In, in our world today, Paul's saying as Christian people, wherever you are, you, you've got to take your stand against what's going on. You've got to take your stand against the devil and his schemes. You've got to be ready for the struggle. You've got to be ready for the fight. You've got to be ready to claim back for God what the enemy is seeking to steal. War is a struggle. And we need to be ready. Verse 13, therefore put on the full armour of God so that when, not if, when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. If the day of evil doesn't seem to come, you're probably not taking much of your stand. I think that's the truth. You see, there may be a war, but if you're not near the front line, it's easy to think there isn't much of a war. When we went and rescued uh, uh, the Falkland Islands, our nation was at war, but it didn't feel like we were at war. You might remember that. For those of us who were here, miles away, a world away from the front line. But as you get near the missional front line, as you get near those places where you're taking your stand... Very quickly, you'll discover, and many, many of you have discovered, it's a war. It's a war. It's a struggle. It's a fight as we get near the front line. And don't be surprised if you step into God's purpose and the first person you come up against is the devil and his minions. And for some of you, over these last few years... I know that fight and that struggle has been ever so real. And you've talked about not understanding these verses in terms of them not living for you until you step down into something that God, you really thought God had called you to and suddenly whack, whack, whack. Where did that come from? Something that you hadn't experienced while you were still in the trenches. But when you put your head over the parapet and went towards the enemy line, suddenly there it was. Suddenly, I get it, these verses are alive in a way they weren't because I've started to take my stand. So what are the tools? What do you need as you think about taking your stand? Well, you need the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Uh, Verse 14. The belt of truth buckled around your waist. What does that mean? Well, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, 
The belt that we need to live by. If we're going to take our stand, we have to live in the truth. And ultimately, that means not simply not lying. Of course it means that. But it means being in the truth. Capital T for truth. Capital T for the the truth. The truth of Jesus. If I'm going to take my stand, then I've got to be fully in Jesus. I've got to be living for Jesus. I've got to be focusing on Jesus. It's got to be about the honor of Jesus. It's got to be everything for Jesus. To view our lives through the truth of Jesus. But here I am taking my stand, not because there's anything in me, but because I'm a sinner saved only by Jesus. I'm who I am only because of Jesus. I'm a child of God only because of Jesus. I'm able to stand only because of Jesus. And unless we go into the mission that God has for us with that, that it's all Jesus, everything because of Jesus and everything for Jesus, then we'll not have the truth belted around our waist. I'm accepted. I'm forgiven. My life belongs to Jesus. That's the truth. And that's what we need to know as we take our stand. If you do not know that in the heart of your being, if you do not step out on the basis of being in Jesus, then quickly you get clobbered. Because very quickly, just one little lie slips in. No one loves you. You're not up to this. No one really cares. You'll never make it. You're not as good as people think you are. If they knew the secrets that are in you, they wouldn't like you anymore. And bang, 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 bang. And it's over. Truth in Jesus. Breastplate of righteousness, closely related. Righteousness, where do we get that from? By working hard, by earning it? Not at all. It's a gift. The Bible says righteousness is a gift. How do we get it? We get it by confessing our sin and inviting God's cleansing, God's gift of righteousness into our lives. If you confess your sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Why a breastplate? Because it guards your heart. Because it guards your heart. If we're not in a rhythm of confessing our sin and receiving God's cleansing and forgiveness, we're stuffed when it comes to living missionally in the world. Because we will live under condemnation, we'll live under guilt, we'll live with all kinds of things between us and God. And so the breastplate of righteousness covers our hearts. The next one's really interesting, and we could spend a long time on all of these, but we're going to whip through to, to, get a, to get a big feel of it this morning. The next one is really interesting. Be with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel. If you want to take your stand, then you need to be ready and willing. You need to have gospel determination to share the life of Jesus which is quite different, I think, to some of the ways that we've understood the armour. We talk sometimes about, I put my armour on at the beginning of the day, and we have images in our head of when someone was dressed up in Sunday school with the armour on. And then we kind of think, because I've got my armour on, I can slink my way into the day, and do what I do, and slink back home again, and I'm protected because I've got my armour on. This says... That your armour is only in place if you go into your day going, okay, who can I share Jesus with today? Who can I be Jesus to and for today? Where's the mission God's given me today? Are my feet ready with the gospel today? That's the way that you protect yourself in the world by being on the offensive, Paul is saying. Not this sort of 
slogging around. I'm quite enjoying it. But we live like that sometimes, don't we? Or is that just me? Come on, is that just me? No, good, three of us, at any rate. You know, I find this hugely challenging. Because I sometimes have thought of the armour as being very kind of um, defensive. And I put the armour on, and I'm okay. I wander through the day, I'm okay, I've got my armour on. Mm, See what you can do, I'm all armoured up. But no, my armour is on if I'm thinking, where can I share Jesus today? Where are my feet that are fitted with the readiness of the gospel going to take me today? To Zacchaeus' house, to the woman at the well. Where is it today that those feet are going to take me? Because I've, I'm putting my armour on and my shoes will take me to a place where I can be Jesus in that situation. Shield of faith. Faith so important. Faith comes always from seeing God, not the things around us. Faith reminds us that God is greater. If we lose faith, then we'll quickly be overwhelmed. Really hard, isn't it, to keep going without any faith? And that's why David, uh, when he fought Goliath, was brilliant in his example. He arrives at the battle scene. There's Goliath shouting all the time every morning, uh, who's going to come and fight me and stuff. All the Israelites are quaking in fear. Why? Because they can only talk about Goliath. They go, have you seen that man? He's massive. He's nine feet tall. Have you seen how big his spear is? Have you seen how massive his shield is? And David says four things in that chapter, 1 Samuel 17. And every one of them is not about Goliath, but about God. And it's a brilliantly helpful perspective. I need to go into each day knowing that God is greater. Someone could say, oh man, yeah, that's a good idea. God is greater. God is the one who we fix our gaze on. God is the one who will bring it all together. What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised, in other words, unprotected Philistine? It's weird, isn't it? He's got a massive helmet, big spear, uh, a massive shield. His boots are just ginormous. And David says, he's not protected because God's with me. And he had nothing, no armor or anything. Different perspective. So important. That's what faith does. Faith says, I can resist what's coming at me because God is greater than the helmet of salvation. You have to be saved. It's obvious, isn't it, really? You need to be in Christ for any of this. Salvation is the key. And, and, and you know that salvation is essential because it's a helmet. No one lives without their head, do they? You know, you can live without an arm or a couple of arms. Uh, you can live without a foot. And you can live without other bits. You can't live without your head. Never seen anyone without their head. Well, not alive, anyway. <laughs> in fact, actually, come to think of it, in terms of human beings, I've never seen anyone without their head. <laughs> uh, uh, we need our head. What is our head? Our head is our salvation, our rescue. My life's in Christ. Sword of the Spirit, uh, which is the Word of God. How immersed are we in God's Word? So, 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 so important. Every day, am I listening to God's Word? Am I allowing it to speak to me? Uh, am I getting its truth in, into my life? Why? So when the devil whispers in our ear, we've got something to say. You know, if my fight against the devil depended on my knowledge of Deuteronomy... I might struggle, but for Jesus, that was it, wasn't it? The devil comes, and three times, he pulls out Deuteronomy, the most obvious book. And he fires it back. Why? Because he knows God's word. And when God says, uh, you know, when the devil whispers in our minds, hey, do you know what? You can't do that. Just forget about being missional in your workplace. You'll never pull that off. You go, ah, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Philippians 4. 
Or, and you're drawing on the stuff that God's speaking into and nourishing you. You know, when, when the devil whispers and says, you know, actually, you can't do this. You, you, you can't. Who do you think you are? Do you know what you did? Do you know that, that mistake you made? Do you know that guilt that you carry? And you go, no, actually, Romans 8 verse 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I'm not listening to that. I'm not going to live out of this guilt of something forgiven in the past. I'm going to live out of the truth of what Jesus says in his word. And so we could go on with loads of these. I'm not going to live today anxious about tomorrow because I know, John chapter 14, that Jesus has gone to prepare a place. And if he's gone to prepare a place, he's going to do what? He's going to come back and take me. Thank you, Alan. That I might also be with him where he is. How cool is that? You coming? So so you can live in the confidence of that. And that's what Paul says all the time. I live in the confidence of what God has done so that it doesn't matter what you do to me. You can flog me. You can beat me up. I can be shipwrecked. I'm going to keep preaching Jesus because in the end, for me to live is Christ and then to die, wow, that's a gain. So I win both ways. No worries. Why? Because he's immersed in God's word. And we also need prayer. The word and prayer. Pray in the spirit. This is so important. So important. And in recent days, perhaps we're learning how important it is uh, as we think about our missional communities and so on, not to pray the things I want to pray about. Ever gone to God with a list? That's what we do. It's a whacking great list. We work our way through the list and God goes, have you finished? We go, yeah. That's prayer. Pray in the Spirit. Quite a different emphasis. Lord, I'm here. Pour out your Holy Spirit on me. What do you want me to pray about today? It's amazing what you find yourself praying about when you're open to praying what the Spirit wants to pray. And God is not like us. He's got different ideas to us. He's got different agendas to us. He's got different goals to us. And we say, Lord, uh, not only teach me to pray, but but help me to pray in the Spirit today. It's it's an amazing thing that God will take you into. It's a, a really important discipline. Lord, just speak to me now about what I should be praying about. Someone will come into your mind. A situation will come into your mind. God will give you a bit of insight about a situation or a circumstance. You just pray it through. Amazing what you'll find yourself praying. Why? Because as you pray in the Spirit, the Spirit that sees all things, the spiritual that's behind the physical, our prayers really make a difference. The weapon of our warfare is to bring down, the Bible says, strongholds, spiritual strongholds, as we pray as he leads us. So important. God has revealed it to us by his spirit. The spirit knows and searches all things, even the deep things of of God. And that verse a moment ago, the weapons that we fight with are not weapons of the world. And so there's this very kind of proactive way of putting on the armor. It's not about a, a, a moment in time Although this is a good thing to do, because it's asking God's protection through the day. It's not a moment in time about putting the armour on. It's saying, I'm going to live with this armour on. I'm going to live in the faith of this shield that I'm holding. I'm going to live the gospel of the feet uh, that I'm wearing, and so on. And then finally, as we bring this thing into land, just a few things to remember. It's not an equal match. Yay, thanks, Simon. I think it was Simon. It was Simon. (laughs) No, I'm sorry. It's uh, absolutely, absolutely. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has never overcome it or understood it. 
that it's not an equal match. This is not a fair competition if you're the devil. This is not a fair match. In Isaiah, these glorious words right through Isaiah 40 and following about how great God is. Who can compare? Uh, with the with the Lord, or who is my equal? Says the Holy One, the the Sustainer, Creator of the ends of the earth, holds our lives in His hands, and the devil and his dominion, in, in His minions uh, are simply creatures, simply creatures that, in the end, submit to the sovereignty of the living God. Hallelujah! And uh, just to prove the point, the battle has already been won. Wait, you get any idea now? Uh, if we stay here till about three o'clock. Some of us will be moderately excited about this, um, uh, but only in a kind of English sort of way, because uh, we don't want to get, um, you know, we slip into over-emotionalism in this church, have you noticed that? Do you know we're likely to overdo it on the emotion? Yeah? No. Okay, Colossians 2, brilliant verses, brilliant verses, verse 12 of Colossians uh, uh, 2, um, uh, sorry, verse 15 even. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. How fantastic is that? How fantastic that the battle that we might engage in has already definitively been won. When Jesus said it's finished, it's finished and it will always be finished. Tetelestai, something has happened in the past, the effects of which will forever go on in the present. Hallelujah already triumphed over the powers and authorities. Uh, one John is, is, uh, is reflecting at the end of his life. He's an old man by the time he's writing these, these verses. And he's looking back, and he who does what is sinful well is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to what? Was to destroy the devil's work. Hallelujah. And God placed all things... Paul mentioned at the beginning of Ephesians, under his feet and appointed him, that's Jesus, head over everything for the church. Hallelujah. So you have authority. It's not yours, but it's given to you because you are in Christ. In Ephesians 1, you're seated in the heavenly places. You're in Christ. You have authority. Go and preach the message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you've received, freely give. You have that authority because you're in Christ. And you remember when Jesus sent out the 72, they came back and what they were amazed about, they said, what, what amazes us, Jesus, is that you're absolutely right when you said that we have authority because we've discovered that even the demons obey us. Hallelujah. Even the demons are under our feet because we're in Christ. We, we're the head in Christ now and not the tail. And again, when uh, uh, Jesus sent them out, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they'll drive out demons, they'll speak in new tongues, they will pick up snakes with their hands, quite a handy skill in Ipswich. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them, and so on. What's it saying? It's saying we've got authority. Because Jesus gives us that authority. Therefore... We need to live remembering that he that's in us is much, much greater than he that's in the world. Amen. Therefore, submit yourselves then to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. 
Fantastic promise that we need to claim every day in our lives. Every moment we need to be spiritually alert to what's coming against the mission of God. And we need to resist the devil in those moments. So we don't need to live in fear. I remember a conversation with someone uh, uh, a few years ago who felt God was calling them into something and really, really excited about it. But they, they were sort of reflecting for quite a long time about whether they were going to take that leap of faith and so on and, and jump into what God was calling them to do. And, uh, and in the end, they decided not to because they knew what the battle would be like. I have to say, I understand that. I understand exactly what they were talking about. I understand exactly what they were going through. And they were taking the words of Jesus very seriously. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. You've got to count the cost. And if we're going to get on the front line of mission, there's going to be a big cost. It will be a struggle. It will be, you've heard me talk about the valley of the shadow of death as we, as we seek to turn around and face out. There will be a struggle. There will be a struggle. There is an enemy who will do all he can to thwart the mission of God through the people of God. And, and, um, and yeah, they walked away and said, I, I can't do it because I, they were too intimidated by the cost. Now, that's not a great place to end up. Uh, we look to Jesus uh, and we walk in his name. And if we submit to God and resist the devil, he'll flee from us. That's the place. But let's be honest and real, it's a struggle sometimes. And, uh, you know, many of you, if you've kind of stepped out in your different places with what you feel God's calling you to do, you know something of that struggle. And we need to stand with each other in that struggle. We need to watch each other's backs in that struggle. We need to pray for each other in that struggle. And I love the way Paul ends these verses. So so what what are we going to do? Well, we're going to remind ourselves that we win. Having done everything to stand, stand firm then. And then what? Well, we're going to push on, says Paul. We're going to push on. He says, pray also for me, what? That I might keep opening my mouth. And pray that every time I open my mouth, I'll be given amazing mystery things to say that connect with the people that are listening. So whatever the devil's going to throw at us, we're going to go, well, actually, we're going to push on because we believe in Jesus. He is the only hope for the world. He's rescued our lives. We're on our way to heaven. We're going to make every day count. And we're going to uh, be filled with the Spirit. Why? Because we want to make the most of every opportunity. Why? Because the days are evil. And we're going to live in that place of pushing on and pushing on. And so he says, pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. And he was praying the same for them. That they should see with spiritual eyes what's really going on. But as you see with spiritual eyes, you can't just see this level, the ruler of this world. You've got to set your heart on things above and see the glorious King of Kings, risen and ascended, who will bring his church to a glorious home. But there's a battle. So we are the bride of Christ. And it's wonderful to celebrate that. But we're also the body of Christ that's waging war against the darkness. Why? For the souls of men and women. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. And we pray that the Lord will give us boldness to preach fearlessly. Let's pray together.